This is the Pet Nutrition Show with Amanda and Dr. Anna. Welcome to the first episode of the Pet Nutrition Show. I'm Dr. Anna Sutton and with my co-host Amanda, we'll be talking nutrition, sustainable pet food and food hacks you can do at home. Today, we're asking the question, are dogs and cats bad for the environment? Is having my dog more polluting than having my car? Well, it depends what your dog is and depends what your car is and depends how many miles you drive your car. So using my figures, this 10 kilogram dog would be a roughly 1,400 miles. So roughly a fifth, small dog, fifth of a car equivalent. That was Peter Alexander, a global food security expert from the UK. Our interview with him on the environmental impact of pet food is coming up next. But first, it's Q&A. Pet Q&A, where we answer what you're wondering about food, moods and poos. Now, Anna, I received an email during the week from a customer and she said to me that she was shocked and disappointed that we had decided to include insect protein in our dog food, which begs the question. What is good or bad about insect protein in dog food? Oh, that's a great question, Amanda. Look, I'm a big fan of insect protein and insect oil for that matter. You know, insect protein, and it does depend a little bit on the type of insect, but it's got one of the most complete and balanced amino acid profiles of any alternative protein. It's got a very favorable fatty acid profile too. So what that means is we absolutely can replace the meat portion of diet, or at least part of the meat portion of the diet with insect products. And I I think that's certainly going to be an increasing trend or a growing trend in the future. And we will be looking at that in more detail in a few weeks. And we also touch on this in the interview to come. Our guest is an investment banker turned farmer turned senior lecturer in global food security at the University of Edinburgh. Peter Alexander, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me here. Now, that's a few gigs so far. So in simple terms, you're really a numbers guy. I think that's absolutely accurate, to be honest. You're also one of the authors of the first global environmental impact assessment of pet food, which was done in 2020, which is one of the things, the key thing we're going to talk about today. So why was there a need to do that assessment? What's the problem with pet food? Well, actually, interestingly, that study came out of an argument that uh, myself and a colleague of mine were having. You know, so basically the, the day job is not pet food. The day job is sort of much broader land use and food systems. And the argument was something along the lines of, you know, shouldn't we include the consumption of, of pets in, in, in our analysis and modeling? I said, no, it's irrelevant. Why, why, why should we kind of worry about this sort of side issue? Um, and I suppose that's probably what most people were, were, were thinking at the time. I suppose my mind was changed by a paper that was published in 2017 looking at the US and we suggested that a third of, of agricultural food emissions in the US were associated with pets, uh, pet food. There were a f- number of things that upset me, if you like, about that paper that I thought were a bit flawed, but I wanted to do it better, which is, I suppose, the, the scientific way is that people react to the previous publications and, and try and uh, build upon them. So do talk about that now, because how was yours different from those very few papers that had gone before? The key difference is really how its byproducts, particularly animal byproducts, are accounted for in that analysis. As you probably realize that many pet foods have a lot of, of animal byproducts, stuff that we don't necessarily want to eat ourselves, although potentially we could, you know, tripe, lungs and 
all sorts of things like that, hard, that have a relatively low value. And the, the question is, how do you, how do you associate those products with a, an environmental footprint, a greenhouse gas emission intensity or something of that nature? These other papers, they, because there isn't, you know, an LCA, a life cycle analysis that, that maybe identifies the greenhouse gas emissions associated with lungs, for example. Then what they do is they take in a, a beef or a lamb emission factor and use that in their calculations. And, and that kind of maybe makes some sense. It's intuitively to them, I suppose it made sense. And, and, and the, the alternative extreme, I suppose, is to say, well, these products are waste products or, I mean, they're certainly byproducts and therefore we could asso- associate them with no, no emissions at all because they would be produced anyway and we have to do something with them. I think neither of those, those positions is, is probably the appropriate one. And what we do uh, is to do a sort of an economic allocation. So we look at the different, the sort of the value of the different byproducts and so forth and associate the, the emissions with the, with the sort of the relative economic value of those different outputs, um, which is what we did in, in this 2020 paper. But if you don't do that and you associate the, the emissions with the full you know, meat in this case, then you end up obviously with a much higher total emission associated with those than you would otherwise using that term economic value allocation. Was there a reason why you just chose Drive to look at dry pet food? Yeah, a, a very practical one, which is that's the only one we had data for. Right. So no, no good reason, only, only kind of pragmatic ones. And of course, it's a very big part of the market. Yeah, it's something like 80%. I don't have the number to hand, but it's, it's, that, it's that order. It's, it's a substantial majority. This whole area, if you like, is transparency of data is a problem. And let me put it that way. Because there are, there are not many pet food manufacturers and they consider their data proprietary, understandably. But that makes an analysis of what's going on very challenging. Well, let's return to that point a little bit later in the discussion. For now, just could you talk us through some of the key results that came out of your modelling? And let's start with greenhouse gas emissions. Does all dry pet food have a similar environmental impact? No. So we broke it down into well, to four categories, so cats and dogs separately. And we looked at a premium product and a sort of mid-market product. And in parallel to debates related to, to human food consumption, basically the the amount of meat in the diet is kind of the primary driver for the overall footprint emissions or, or land use or water use. So obviously the premium products tend to have higher, higher meat content and therefore higher, higher emissions. That's also, you know, when we talk, start talking about wet pet foods, it's likely that they are, tend to have higher meat content as well and therefore would be associated with higher, higher emissions. Can you quantify that in a way that we can get that sort of difference. I think in your paper, and I'm going from memory here, it, the premium dry food for dogs is around about seven kilos, or something in that order. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's it's about seven kilos, and you know the what well, the market dog food is something around about three kilos, so, so something the order of of a factor of two, two and a bit between them. Cat foods are slightly lower again than dog foods with something like one and a half for cat food and the order of just a bit less than five for the, for the premium cat food. Peter, why would that be? Because cat food is typically much higher in, in dry matter protein. So, you know, you run a dog food 
and super premium, maybe 26 to 28%, usually around 28% protein, dry matter basis. And then a cat, super premium cat typically runs, you know, above 30% protein. So why are the numbers coming up lower for cat? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, they're not, they're lower between sort of, you know, five to seven for the premium product cat to dog. It's not an incredibly huge difference. Mm. It could be kind of within the, the range of uncertainty and the, the transparency of the data there. But as I say, the, the primary driver is, is the amount of meat and particularly ruminant meat. It could be that dog foods tend to have slightly more ruminant meat and the cat foods have, have more chicken. Yeah, I think you've nailed it there. And just harking back to the argument that you had with your colleague that was one of the catalysts for this paper in the first place, is the result as irrelevant as you thought? And how does, for instance, seven kilos compare to the emissions that might be involved in a human diet? Can you provide some sort of comparison there? Perhaps. In terms of the whole food system, we, we were suggesting between one and three percent of the sort of global food system emissions were, were associated with, with dry pet food. So we could add a bit more for, for wet pet food and, and other animals beyond cats and dogs. So we're talking a few percentage points overall. It depends how you look at it. It's substantial, but it's not dominant. It's in that gray area where, where it's important, but it's not so important that people, you know, have neglected it, if you like, for valid reasons as well. You know, it's, it's within some level of, of uncertainty in some of these very complex uh, models, but it is something that we need to think about, particularly when we're thinking about individual or individual choices it's important that we do think about it. You know, if we're cutting down on our international travel and we're thinking about our own diets, but yet we have a number of large dogs that we're feeding premium pet foods or, or, or even worse, kind of human-grade human foods, human meat particularly, then, you know, we need to think about that, those emissions as well and not, not be a, a blind spot in our, in our own decision-making. It's big, but it's not huge, I suppose, is is where I'm coming from. Somebody asked me, are cats and dogs more polluting than cars? Well, clearly, that's a question, doesn't, it needs to be a bit more detailed. You know, what do you mean by, what do you mean by cars? Do you mean, are all cats and dogs more polluting than all cars? To which the answer is definitely not. But, you know, is having my dog more polluting than having my car? Well, it depends what your dog is and depends what your car is and depends how many miles you drive your car and all of those things. So I, I took I took my numbers and actually the the Penderelli paper, which is the other mm. one, uh, and put them into to, to number of mu number of miles driven per dog, because in that paper, as uh, I know you know, there's this statistic about this ten kilogram dog, and what feed it would be required to to consume and how much how, what the emissions would be associated with that dog. So I've, I've taken that that dog and put it into to sort of number of miles of a U, an average UK pet or car? The answer is, uh, so if you take the Penderelli 10 kilogram dog and you feed it dry pet food, um, by, by the Penderelli dog, I mean the, the Penderelli figures for the 10 kilogram dog, it's uh, 4,000 miles. Wet pet food in, under that dog, it's 32,000 miles, roughly equivalent to about four cars on an average distance that's driven in the UK. You'd be a bit pushed to drive that far. In the UK, wouldn't you? Yeah, I suspect I suspect you drive further on average than we drive. I, I think we most definitely do. Just so I've got that right. So that's four times the annual driving distance, if you like. 
or, or four cars driving the annual amount? Yeah, four, car, four average petrol cars driving the average distance for a car in the UK. Annually. Yeah, you could have four cars, which would be equivalent to a 10 kilogram dog. And a 10 kilogram dog, as you know, is a small dog. Yes. Now, obviously, if you had a 40 kilogram dog, that would be 16 cars, which is a lot of cars. It's a lot of cars. But as we, as, uh, as you know, I'm not really, I'm not really supporting the, those figures. I don't think that's. So using my figures, however, this 10 kilogram jog would be a roughly 1,400 miles. So roughly, you know, a fifth mm. of a car. Yeah. This small dog, fifth of a car, which I think is more plausible. So there are some key pet food trends, though, that are potentially making that situation even worse, even though we can't attribute an exact number to that wet pet food. Or what do you see those, those trends might be? I think we can see... Two sets of kind of contradictory, if you like, trends in the the pet food market. We have this sort of premiumization, humanization of of pet foods, you know, higher meat on the one hand. And then we have on the other hand, sort of more focus on sustainability, plant-based diets, vegan dog foods, et cetera. And also, you know, we can talk about insects and and other sort of alternative uh, sources for protein uh, in the foods. There's two trends, one towards more human-like foods and higher emissions fundamentally and, and the alternative kind of sustainable trends. And so you mentioned insect protein before. You know, is that one of the, or, you know, products that contain insect protein, is that one of the more sustainable food choices that people could make? And, and what might some others be? Well, maybe is probably the quick answer. And uh, uh, maybe depending on what those insects themselves have eaten. And, and that's why these things also get you know, really quite complex, really quite quickly. So if those insects are, are reared on one, some waste stream or some byproduct stream that has a very low value and very low embedded sort of carbon content in terms of emissions, then it could be great. You know, it could be a really good source of, of protein that, that can be provided in a, a low emissions way. Whereas, you know, if those insects are actually, you know, crops that, that were had a higher value that could have been used for other things are being provided to to rear those insects, then then obviously the advantages are, are much lower because you've still got a sort of another trophic level to go through. Those those in, insects are still there's still losses. They may be much more efficient than a ruminant, for example, but still there are losses associated with that. So it depends is the quick answer. Mm. Is there an argument for pet food manufacturers to do some better marketing to get people more comfortable with animal byproducts because there's certainly been such a reaction to, oh, I, I wouldn't eat that. So my furry, you know, my little fur child shouldn't eat that either. What's your opinion about that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe the answer is that we should be eating it. Uh, if it's slightly changing your, your, your question, but uh, I mean, one of the things that we could do better with our food system more broadly than pets is actually, you know, for the animals that we do have is to eat more of them, to be less squeamish about eating. Uh, I mean, and that, that applies to our pets as well, but it, it, but it applies to us too. And in your paper, you also suggest some policy interventions, including perhaps a carbon tax on pet food. Yeah, I mean, well, carbon tax on, on foods more generally, but yeah, yes, specifically pet food. I mean, obviously, one way of internalizing that externality, you know, of making, having a price signal of the of the environmental burden of foods is is through taxation. You know, we have a situation today where 
merit very often subsidies and uh, are provided to to the livestock sector to encourage production where those those externalities you know the greenhouse gases and loss of biodiversity and other things are, are not are not costed and we're kind of therefore overproducing relative to some sort of social optimal level taxation or changing and or changing those subsidy regimes as a way of of trying to correct for that um, correct for that I mean the other obvious way or two obvious ways of reducing the impact of pets. Well, clearly we could have fewer pets, but that might not be considered acceptable. So the, the other maybe more acceptable alternative would be to have smaller pets, at least fewer pets per household perhaps, but you know, we can move down from a, a Great Dane and a St. Bernard's to a Jack Russell. The scale and particularly in terms of dogs is so large that, you know, that would actually have a pretty material. So, you know, we doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be this sort of price signal through, through taxation about what types of food it can be also how much food by reducing the sort of the, the mass of the pet, even if it isn't the number of pets. Well, that was Peter Alexander, the food numbers guy, clearly. Now, the point about transparency is a really good one. I think it's definitely an ongoing debate in pet food. And, you know, regulations are changing in both the U.S. and Australia to, to reflect this and, and to try and make pet food more transparent to, to the consumer. But there, there's something else I want to touch on as well, and that's some of the trends that he talked about, particularly about the growth in the humanization trend or the movement towards eating more premium food. And one of my largest concerns particularly in emerging pet nations, for example, like China, is the trend to ever-increasing levels of protein wanes in excess of what our dogs and cats actually need. And we're talking, you know, maybe a third to a half of more protein than in a standard economy or, or medium-priced formulation. You know, that's a, that's a lot of protein when you think about the number of pets in those nations. And, and we're going to look in more detail about just how much protein does a dog or cat really need? Because I think there is this idea in many consumers' minds that more is better, but that's not necessarily the case. Now, you had another insight from today, and it's a little bit at the other end of the dog. <laughs> that's right, Amanda. You know, what goes in comes out. And by that, I mean poo. And, you know, well, you probably, well, you will know that the Average 10 kg dog probably generates around 150 to 200 grams of poo a day, depending on what you feed it, of course. I mean, sometimes to do a lot more and sometimes to do a bit, a bit less. But that adds up when, say, you've got 67 million dogs as you have in the US. And even in Australia, we've got around 6 million odd dogs or so. So that's more or less 1,000 tons of poo a day that has to be dealt with somehow. And we'll talk more about poo in another episode, I'm sure. I do recall seeing a, a nice little idea where you, you have streetlights driven by essentially poo energy generators. Oh, I love that. <laughs> the poo lights. That's right, the poo lights. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will pick up more on poo in a future episode. <laughs> Stay tuned for that, folks. And now it's time for Dr. Anna's Food Hacks. It's time for Home Food Hacks with Dr. Anna. Hi, guys. Well, I'm back in my kitchen now, and I've had a look in my fridge, and there's really not a lot there, actually. I did find this. So melon for dogs are fantastic. It's really rich in 
vitamin C, which is fabulous to support their immune system. But it's also high in water, so it helps with hydration. And it's got a natural sweet taste and dogs absolutely love sugar. It's not very good for them, but they do love it. So it's a bit of a treat. Melon's not bad. So I'm just gonna scrape off the red bit. Don't give them the green bit, by the way, because that will upset their tummy. Pop it in a blender. And then the other thing I found in my fridge, a tiny bit of yogurt. It contains lactose and dogs are sensitive to lactose. And live yogurt like this contains live bacteria strains. And that is great for your dog's gut. So you don't need to have a massive chunk of fruit or veg to use. You, you just use what you've got. And if you're trying to just get the last bit of value out of every bit of food you've got in your fridge. There's a fair bit of water come out of that. Can you see how much water watermelon's actually got in it? So I'm just gonna split that between the two dogs and their bowls and that'll be fine for them. The Pet Nutrition Show is proudly presented by Planet A Pet Food, bringing dogs a flexitarian diet that's good for them and the planet.